They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful that uh, you are our God and you have revealed yourself to us, and we know that all things happen according to a plan. And even though we do not understand the details of that plan, we know that because you are perfect, the plan is perfect. And because you are omniscient, you have taken into account every conceivable factor and you have uh, brought this to bear from, in terms of the outworking of your plan in human history. We are we rejoice that Tom Flint is now in your presence, while at the same time we uh, grieve and are saddened because of the impact this has on his family and on his children, and we pray that you will strengthen them and sustain them and that uh, your grace and your love will be very real to them during this time. Father, we pray for us this evening as we focus on your word that we might be strengthened and encouraged by your word as we see how you work things out through history and how salvation is so freely offered to all without distinction and that you have provided a free and complete salvation not on the basis of who we are or what we've done but on the basis of the completed, the finished, the perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just on a humorous note, as Catherine was wobbling down the aisle there with her plate of cookies, it reminded me of the last time my father was here. You know, you've got to be careful. I always swore he really didn't have Alzheimer's, that he just had a stress-induced dementia because the, we had just opened, carpets were new. He came out of the kitchen when it was over here. His coffee cup was filled to the brim. One more drop, it would have spilled. And he had his hand, had cookie in his mouth and a handful of cookies. He couldn't have got another crumb in there. And I walked over to him and I said, let, let me take that coffee from you. I don't want you to spill it on the, co- on the coffee. And let's just, just put those cookies somewhere. And he reared back and he threw the cookies at me. Spilling the coffee in the process. And I banned him from the church after that because you just can't throw cookies at the pastor, even if he is your son. And I didn't know it until, I guess, last week or the week before when I was talking with, with uh, Army, who, of course, the caregiver works for us and took care of him for all these many years, that she said, oh, yeah, every now and then she would ask him something about the church, and he'd say, well, Robbie won't let me go there. Why? And she would ask him why, and he would say, well, because I threw cookies at him one night. That's Alzheimer's. What Alzheimer's? I knew he was faking it, so I'm glad you didn't throw any cookies at me. I would not want to ban you from the church either. I get a reputation banning people from the church. All right. Well, we are in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, and this is a remarkable chapter because of the transition that takes place here. Now, sometimes we just don't grasp how remarkable this is because we aren't coming at this from the situation as it existed in the first century where the church up to this point has been primarily Jewish. And if you were Jewish, you were somewhat secluded. You were separated from the Gentile culture and society around you. You could have Gentiles under certain conditions within your home as guests, but you could not go to the home of a Gentile. There was a very strict observance of this separation between the Jewish community and the Gentile community, and the grace of God was for the Jews. It was not really for the Gentiles, even though a Gentile could come into the synagogue as a God-fearer, like Cornelius the centurion we're reading about in this chapter. You could come uh, to Judaism as a God-fearer, as a proselyte of the gate or a full proselyte, and and be basically convert to Judaism. And many people don't realize this because 
We live in a sort of a post-enlightenment Judaism today, a post-Middle Age Judaism, but early Judaism after the fall of the temple, after A.D. 70, after the fall of the temple, in early post-temple Judaism, Judaism then and in the first century and the first two or three centuries preceding uh, Christ, Judaism was a religion that, that reached out and sought to bring in converts. It was involved in uh, missionary activity, not in the same way that the church is or to the degree or intensity of the church, but it was nevertheless a part of Judaism. This is why they had these three or four different levels of, of converts because they were seeking converts to Judaism. This was part of the Abrahamic covenant that the Jews understood that the promise of God to Abraham was that they were to be a blessing to all peoples. And they understood that within an Old Testament context of bringing people into into the Jewish fold, as it were, not necessarily uh, in, in the same kind of sense that we have today with churches, uh, with missionaries going out to churches and planting new churches and starting because, of course, the difference is that they were an ethnic uh, race that had a uh, ethnic-based uh, covenant with God, and the church is not ethnic-based. For in the church there is no longer Jew nor Greek, male or female, bond or slave, for we are all one in Christ. And so when we look at this chapter, we have to put ourself, ourselves in the place of those first-century apostles, first-century Christians, who even though they have some sort of theoretical understanding of reaching out to uh, Gentiles, that Christ died for all, including Gentiles, it's still very, very strange for them. In fact, even though Peter goes through these events in Acts chapter 10, it's not long before the the events in, in uh, Galatians chapter 1 occur when he goes to Antioch and instead of uh, going to dinner with the Gentiles and eating, uh, having uh, lobster and fried catfish for dinner, he, um, so I'm just seeing who was awake. You know, that's all unclean. They couldn't eat that under the dietary laws. He isolated himself and only ate with the Jews and stayed among the Jews. So he sort of fell back into his uh, former manner of life, which is, that, that's the habit pattern. So it's, it was difficult for them to break. It was cultural. It was habitual. It wasn't just a matter of a spiritual issue. So they were having to learn as they went through this transition. So what occurs here in Acts 10 is, is revolutionary from their, uh, from their perspective. So as we look at these events here in Acts chapter uh, Acts chapter 10, let me just review a little bit where we are. We have this map showing the relation of these major cities mentioned in Acts 9, Acts 10, Acts 11, Jerusalem down about uh, 25, 20 miles or so or less from the upper uh, northern reaches of the Dead Sea, then about 25 miles from there to the northwest to Lydda or modern Lod, and then about another uh, 12, 13 miles to Jaffa or Joppa, and then it's about 35 uh, miles or so north to uh, Caesarea. Caesarea was rebuilt by Herod the Great and was named after uh, Caesar Augustus and became the capital of the province of Judea. It was originally founded as Strato's Towers. It's identified on this map up to the north. And when Herod rebuilt it, as I taught last time, he built the largest or the first artificial harbor and the most significant harbor in the uh, eastern Mediterranean. And so ships from all over the Mediterranean came to Caesarea Maritima, as it was called, to distinguish it from other uh, cities named for Caesar, such as Caesarea Philippi, which is in the north of Israel, uh, north of the northern kingdom, up near... Uh, uh, Banyas or Pan up in the area in the far, far north near the city of Dan, not very far from the city of Dan in the farther northern part 
of Israel not far from Mount Hermon. So this is one artist's depiction of what the uh, city looked like. It was quite large. It was quite uh, advanced and modern for its day. This is another picture just focusing on the harbor itself where the ships would come and offload their uh, all of their goods and pick up other goods and then take them around to the other parts of the uh, of the of, of the Mediterranean. So I pointed out last time we saw this picture of what remains of the outer or the lower palace, and the there was a pool in there which you can see marked out by the rectangle. This is an artist's or architect's depiction of the upper palace, which is to the right, and then out to the left was the lower palace, and you can see the outline of the rectangle there that would have uh, been around the pool that we just looked at. They have a large coliseum there, and then I added this is a different picture from the one I had last time. Just it has a little bit better perspective on the length of, of the um, these waterways that they built to bring water in, fresh water into Caesarea. This is another new picture. This is a picture uh, just to show you some of the ruins that are there, the various places all in the uh, foreground here, these were all built up, homes, uh, businesses, uh, all, the seat of the government for the province was there, and uh, then there were other, uh, uh, there was a temple up on the uh, upper area, so it was a large, well-developed uh, site. Here's another uh, depiction of the ruins that were up on top, and so you see a lot of different uh, structures that were there, some were uh, residences, some were businesses, and there was a, it, so it was uh, a large, large, very active cosmopolitan city. And as I pointed last time, there were several uh, Roman uh, legions that were, uh, that were stationed here, and so that provided a large number of Gentiles within uh, the city itself. So that kept it uh, very active. And one of these uh, uh, Roman uh, Roman legions that was there had a centurion within it, roughly equivalent to our uh, first sergeant, company level, uh, company level uh, non-commissioned officer named uh, uh, Cornelius, who is a, identified in the text as a God-fearer. And I gave you this quote last time, which I thought is a nice, good description. From Polybius, a contemporary historian who wrote that centurions are required not to be bold and adventurous so much as good leaders of steady and prudent mind, not prone to take the offensive or start fighting wantonly, but able when overwhelmed and hard-pressed to stand fast and die at their post. So Cornelius is a man who has spent about 15, 16, 17 years in uh, the military, he is a solid leader. He is a very stable individual. He's a very thoughtful individual. And as we see from his, the depiction of him in, the, in Acts chapter 10, he is a God-fearer, which means that he is at this point very positive to God. He's not a believer yet, even in the Old Testament sense, because if he, had, if he was an Old Testament saint, then this would be handled very differently, I believe. But he is not an Old Testament saint. He hasn't been regenerate yet, but he is seeking God. So there is a, a very strong, positive volition on his part. And so he has been involved at a, uh, at a certain level within the synagogue, but he hasn't adopted the Jewish practices or adopted the law. He hasn't become uh, a proselyte at all uh, in this, at this particular time. So he is, uh, we looked at the description of what took place in Acts chapter 10 as God coordinates his revelation to Cornelius and to Peter. Now here's a principle that is so important to understand is when God reveals anything in private in the scriptures to, to a prophet or to anyone else, there is always external objective confirmatory evidence. You never have people saying, well, God appeared to me, and you just take their word at it. There is confirmation that there's a validation of the claim, and there are qualifications that are given in the Old Testament 
For anyone who claimed to speak for God or anyone who claimed to be a prophet, if you claimed to be a prophet, all of your predictions had to be 100% true. If there was one that was not 100% true, then the penalty was the death penalty. It was a capital crime because you had misrepresented God, and that would mislead people away from the truth. So uh, these these visitations, whether it's a... whether it is a theophany where God uh, appears to speak to an individual or whether it is a Christophany, such as when Christ appeared to, uh, to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, whether it is a dream or a vision. I pointed out last time the distinction is that a dream is something that occurs when one is asleep and a vision occurs when one is awake. They take place uh, inside of a person's head, but there is a, an objective aspect to it in that what is revealed can be validated or verified. It's not the same kind of thing as you see with Muhammad going to the mountain and having uh, uh, the alleged appearance of Gabriel revealing the Quran to him. It's not like Joseph Smith going up on the, on the mountain, mountainside, hillside there of Palmyra where the angel Moroni appeared to him and gave him these little magical glasses to put on so he could uh, translate the Book of Mormon. Uh, all of this is done in private with no external verification, validation, con- confirmatory evidence whatsoever. It's totally based on just the testimony of the individual who claimed to have the experience. But here you have a situation where it begins. Cornelius is has a vision. It's very specifically described in terms of its time and the circumstances during the ninth day, which is about the time of prayer. Uh, the angel appears to him and calls his name, which startles him, and informs him that his prayers have been heard and instructs him to send a delegation down to Jaffa to uh, find Simon Peter and that Simon would then come back and they were to bring him back uh, to Caesarea. Now that happens on one day and so probably late in the afternoon, so they probably did not leave until the next day and it would have taken most of that day to travel down to Caesarea. They might not have made it until the ne- even the th- next morning, the third day. And so it is at that time, uh, later in the afternoon on the third day, uh, near noon, that Peter has a vision. And Peter's vision is timed to fit with the arrival of this delegation from up north. So the first day you have, I'm working out the chronology for you, the first day you have the appearance to Cornelius. They leave the morning of the second day, arrive noon uh, the third day. And so by the time they get back to uh, back up to uh, Caesarea, it's going to be after the fourth day and into the fifth day. So that will work itself out as we see the description a little later on. Uh, Peter goes up up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, which is noon, and he's getting hungry. I think it's rather humorous to think about Peter up there. He's getting hungry. He's got to pray. I don't know if any of y'all have ever had experiences like that when you've tried to, you've had some normal function going on, and yet you had you wanted to pray or you wanted to read your Bible, or you were probably, all of us have had the experience of lying down at night, and we're going to pray before we go to sleep, and the next thing we know, we're waking up. And we just hope the Lord understands that we really weren't bored with His presence, and we just fell asleep praying because we were tired. But things like that happen, or we're hungry, or something is going on. That's what's going on with Peter. And the Lord uses that in a somewhat humorous manner as as Peter is there praying, knowing that he is hungry and wanting to eat, that he falls into a trance. Now, I'm not uh, <clears throat> sure that I would translate it that way because there are some problems with the terminology. This is a, I've got listed three words to pay attention to here from the Greek. The, he f- falls into a trance. And this is the, the Greek noun ecstasis, where we get our English word ecstasy. Ecstasy, of course, is now some sort of hallucinogenic drug. That's not what it's describing. 
and neither is it describing the kind of out-of-body experience you have in some kinds of uh, meditation techniques. Uh, neither is it describing the kind of, uh, of ecstatic experience that the mystic religions would induce through various uh, artificial means, whether it was drug-induced or through some sort of uh, uh, activity or stupor. This is what happens with the Sufis. In uh, in Islam, you have uh, you have your uh, uh, Shias and your Sunnis. Those are the branches of Islam that we are normally hear about. But there's another branch, the Sufis, and the Sufis are uh, the branch that produces, for example, the whirling dervishes. And what they're doing is they're going through these uh, dances and they're getting themselves worked up so that they will have an ecstatic experience. They're basically the charismatic version uh, form for Islam. And so you ha- that's, that is the, con- the English concept of ecstasy or having an ecstatic experience. But the ecstatic experience that, I- that is in pagan religions and human viewpoint thought is not the same kind of thing that happens when God reveals himself in Scripture. All through Scripture, we see that the way God does things is always different from the way the world's religions do things. And yet what happens when you come to the text, as many people do, as many scholars do with the modern presupposition that the Bible, Christianity, Old Testament Judaism are just uh, various forms of developments of religion, much like all other religions, they've all just naturally developed, then you want to conform what you see in Scripture to what we know from human experience rather than uh, recognizing that what what is seen in false religions is just a cheap counterfeit of what God was actually was doing in the way He revealed Himself to, through uh, the prophets and the apostles. So this is simply a term for uh, having a d- vision as opposed to a dream, because Peter would be wide awake in conscience during the uh, mid part of the day. And the text makes a point that uh, that while he is in this state of of advanced hunger, then God lowers this sheet, what we would call a tablecloth, and there are all manner of beasts on there. And God addresses him in verse 13. And both of these verbs are an aorist imperatives, which indicates do it now. It's priority rise and kill and eat. And the word for kill is the verb I have up here in verse uh, 13. Thuo in the Greek, which is more frequently used in terms of making a sacrificial uh, kill, uh, making a sacrificial slaughter. It's not typically a word simply for butchering an animal to eat. So there is a certain ceremonial overtone to the word that God uses here. Because and and it enhances or or reinforces the fact that all of these beasts and animals and birds that are on the tablecloth, many of them are identified as unclean in the Old Testament, and yet the word that God is using is a word that implies making a sacrifice, and yet you would never sacrifice an unclean animal in the Old Testament. So God's making a point out of the fact that what's going on here is a major shift in how God, what God requires of his people, that under the Mosaic law, there was a specific dietary requirement. Now, we frequently run into uh, people today who are on various forms of, uh, of uh, diets, and there's always somebody who comes along every few years and they have a, a biblically-based diet. And they will say things such as, uh, uh, you know, it's not quite as bad as uh, what would Jesus eat or what would Moses eat, but it's almost that bad. And they try to argue that the diet that is there in the Mosaic Law is the healthiest of all diets and that if... Uh, we would only follow that diet, then we would live longer and we would be healthier and all, all of these other things. But see, what they're assuming is that the diet that is there is given for health reasons. Now, there may have been a health benefit or secondary or, uh, uh, consequence to the diet, but 
physical health benefits had nothing whatsoever to do with that diet. And the reason we know that is because when we get to uh, Acts chapter 10 here, God declares all of these animals to be clean and nothing has happened agriculturally, biologically, pharmacologically, or genetically, or, or in term, or culinarily, if that's a, I can use it that way, to change anything. They haven't suddenly learned to cook, uh, pork, uh, at a, uh, so that the, uh, meat is well done to kill off any bacteria. Uh, that might be resident in, in the pork. They haven't learned ha- anything about proper preparation so that they can avoid any sort of disease or uh, infection or anything whatsoever that might come from eating poorly prepared uh, prepared meat. It's, it's, it's a decree from God that it's now clean. Why? Because the there was a lesson that was taught in the Old Testament uh, through the diet. And it was to teach that that sin impacted everything and some animals, and I haven't been able to trace this through every single uh, animal and creature mentioned in the Old Testament, but the ones, all the ones that I'm familiar with and have researched are all associated in some way with the curse, with death so that animals that were scavengers were unclean. They're associated with death. Death was the penalty for sin. So you didn't eat catfish and lobsters and shrimp because they feed off of carrion. They feed off of uh, what's in the bottom of the ocean. They feed off the consequence of the penalty of sin. And so there's to be this separation from sin and from anything that's been touched by sin or affected by sin. This is why... uh, a woman after she gave birth, certainly not an immoral act, but a woman after she gave birth was considered ceremonially unclean for a specific period of time. It has nothing to do with the fact that it was unhealthy or any other factor. It was simply that part of the curse of Genesis 3 was that the woman would experience uh, increased pain and suffering in childbirth. And so the act of childbirth has been impacted by the judgment of sin in Genesis 3, and people needed to have a little visual aid to remind them of these things. So the diet was the same thing. The, the, the animals that were uh, considered to be unclean were unclean because in some way something about them, their eating habits, their grazing habits, whatever it might be, was somehow affected or related to uh, the impact of, of, of sin. And so Peter, as, a, as an observant Jew, although as we've seen already, he's beginning to get wake up to grace in the sense that the, mo- the realization of the dispensational distinctives that, um, that the law is no longer in effect because he's been living with uh, Simon the Tanner, who is a man who would be unclean every day because of his work until sunset, but Peter is living in his home. And so he's he's somewhat prepared for this, but it still comes as a surprise and a bit of a of an of a shock and awakening for him. We don't always cap- capture things right away when we learn them or are exposed to correct ideas. We and it doesn't mean we're slow or we're dense. It just means we're human and we have to process of what we're learning and integrate it with, uh, with what we've already learned and what, what's in our background. So Peter is told to rise, to kill and eat, and Peter says, no, no, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Now here, this is the last line, verse 14, common is the word koine, or the noun here, koinos. It is the uh, singular, the accusative singular feminine here, but it... Um, means that which is common. It later referred to the common assembly in a, in a town or village or, or political uh, organization, but it meant that which is common, not in a pejorative sense. Common is pig tracks, one might say, but this is just what is everyday and ordinary as in contrast to that which was uh, hagias, that which was set apart to the service of God. So that which is set apart to the service of God, it was distinguished from that which was 
common or everyday or for everyday use. This was true of eating utensils in the home. This was true of all of the all of the utensils that were used in the temple or in the tabernacle were uh, considered to be uh, uh, kaddish. Uh, they were sanctified. They were set apart to the service of God. This is why why the, the land of Israel is called the Holy Land. Now, there have been some people who've said, well, there's nothing any more holy about that land than any other land. Land is land. Well, that's true, but it's only true if you have misidentified the meaning of holy. Holy doesn't mean pure. Holy means set apart. And that's the only piece of real estate in the world that God has set apart for his use, for his people, uh, until and and it will be for the land will belong to to is, Israel and the descendants of Abraham Isaac and Jacob for all eternity. That's why it's called the Holy Land. It is a special land because God ha- has decreed that that is to be set apart for the Jewish people and for a temple and for a place where in the future once again all worship will be restored to. Uh, to Israel, and all the nations will come to the uh, millennial temple and, and worship there. Now, that's not the case today. Jesus identified that clearly when he talked to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, that there would be this period when people would not focus on one spot as the center of worship. But we also know that there is a clear indication in Scripture that that's for a temporary period when the church is here during the church age, uh, the pre- present age. So Peter is struggling with this concept of what is secular and profane versus what is holy and set apart to God and, and, by, and cleansed, katharos, uh, as opposed to unclean, akatharos. So <clears throat> God instructs him three times to eat, and then we're not told that he ate. We're told that the tablecloth with all these animals ascends to heaven, is taken back up into heaven. And Peter is left there to contemplate, to think about what he's just seen, which is what verse 17 uh, begins. And this is the third scene in this episode uh, describing the arrival now of the delegation from Caesarea, the delegation that Cornelius sent, and their arrival. So we're told that while Peter was wondering uh, within himself as to what the meaning was of this vision, again, it's clearly identified as a as a vision, that these men arrive from Cornelius and they make inquiry at Simon's house, that would be Simon the Tanner's house, and they're standing outside the gate. And they called as they uh, knock or at call at the gate, and that they're looking for Simon Peter, not Simon the Tanner, and if he was living there. Verse 19, while Peter thought about the, uh, was thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Now, my first point was that whenever God does something in private, he always has confirmatory evidence. So what happens is you have this original vision by Cornelius up in Caesarea to get, to send these men down to uh, down to Jaffa, when they arrive, God gives a corollary vision to Peter, telling Peter that these men are going to arrive and they want you to go with them. So there's uh, confirmatory evidence on both sides. And uh, the, uh, the Spirit tells him. Now, how the Spirit told him, we don't know. Was it audible? Could you have recorded it with an MP3 recorder? I don't know. Was it just inside of his head? I don't know. It does, many of these statements are not, uh, events like this are not described enough in the book of Acts. Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and uh, said, Yes, I'm the one whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man. Now, here it uses the term dikaios, which is the same term used for righteous or righteousness 
in, uh, in Romans, but here it doesn't mean righteous in a divine sense, in a sense of, of possessing imputed righteousness, because that would indicate that he was already saved. He is just in that he is living his life as much as possible uh, in accordance with the uh, uh, stipulations of Judaism without circumcision and becoming a proselyte of the gate, of course, but that he is uh, living a just life in, in relative human justice, and he fears God. Now, remember, fearing God is what? The beginning of wisdom. This is the beginning of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 4. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Many times in the New Testament, this is the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord does not necessarily mean that the person is a believer yet. It, it, it expresses, though, and identifies his positive volition. Positive volition is a term that is used to describe the unbeliever. It can describe the believer too, but in this case, the unbeliever's desire to know God, to know more about God. And so because the unbeliever, through general revelation, through his conscience, has come to understand that there is something greater than himself, he wants to know more about that. And so God will send uh, and will give him more revelation. And so this has happened with Cornelius. And so God is in the process of giving Cornelius that increased revelation so that he can come to the knowledge of the truth, which he so desires. So he's one who fears God, and he has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews. He is well-respected. He takes that which he has made and uses that to aid the poor among the Jews, he uh, gives to uh, various alms to take care of the poor, and he has a great reputation. And so they say that he has a reputation among all the nations of the Jews. He was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in, that is Peter, invites them in and lodged them. So this is overnight. And on the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa, or Jaffa accompanied him. Now, we don't know how many went with him, just a few. but So he's got this group of observant Jews who are really curious at this point because they're getting ready to go to the home of a Gentile, which they've never done. They've never been inside of a Gentile's home because that's been completely uh, prohibited in the past. So they must have been a little bit excited and uh, somewhat uh, fearful, perhaps, not knowing what they were going to see, and this was going to open up all new things for them. And uh, so they come in and and uh, head to Caesarea. And the, the following day, they entered Caesarea. So they have one day of travel. It's about a day and a half travel to Caesarea. So this would be about the fifth day. And now Cornelius was awaiting them, called them to get, called together his relatives and close friends. Now remember we're told back earlier in the chapter, verse 2, that he was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. So he brings in all of his household, all of his servants, his, uh, if he's married, his wife, his children, uh, uncles, cousins, whoever's with him brings all the family together, all of his servants, in order to hear what Peter has to say. And as Peter was coming in, you just see Luke describes this with action. Peter's coming in, and Cornelius comes out to greet him and falls down at his feet to worship him. Now, what Cornelius is doing isn't an act of worship as per se. It is. This was a typical way in which a Roman would bow prostrate himself before someone of great respect. It's not necessarily an act of worship towards God. The word for uh, worship is a word that simply means to bow the knee or to bend down. Uh, heads of state should not bow down to other heads of state. Unfortunately, we've had the wrong example the last four years, and our president has been bowing to other countries, which... I don't, that ought to be classified as treason as far as I'm concerned, but it certainly indicates poor training and a, a, a completely confused concept of national identity. Uh, so, But Cornelius comes, he falls down at Peter's feet, 
And Peter lifts him up and says, stand up. I'm also a man. I'm just a man like you are. There's nothing special. Now, this is a great verse to go to in terms of uh, those who wish to affirm that uh, those who are the, have descended from Peter are the vicars of Christ and are due special honor and respect. And I'm speaking of the popes of the Roman Catholic Church who claim to have a direct lineage through apostolic um, uh, descent to to Peter. But that's Peter shows tremendous humility here. He says, I'm a man like you are. Uh, he does not uh, wish any kind of special distinction or special honor. And they begin to talk together. And, of course, everybody's uh, crowding around wanting to hear what Peter and Cornelius are discussing. And Peter, one of the things that Peter points out is that it's completely uh, out of line, completely unlawful for a Jewish man to come into the house to enjoy the hospitality of a Gentile. To keep company with one of another nation actually means to go into the house of a of the goyim. The, the Hebrew would be the goyim, ethnoi in the in the Greek. Uh, it is a term for Gentiles, or it's a term for national uh, ethnicities. And here it would, I think, it would be uh, better, more clearly translated, not to go in uh, to uh, the home of someone who is a Gentile. But he says, God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now, he is using this in a technical ritual sense because the Mosaic law had distinguished the Jews from everybody else. The Jews were hagias. They were set apart. They were not common. They were set apart to God. All the Gentiles were common in the sense that they were not set apart to God. They had not been uh, placed in a unique or distinct relationship with God with a distinct covenant. Only Israel has a specific covenant with God. And so we read uh, verse 29, Therefore, Peter says, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Notice his, he is completely oriented to God's authority. He follows God's command. And then Cornelius asks him in 30, verse 30, he says, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. So he's describing his vision as the angel appeared to him and how the angel instructed him to uh, that he had heard his prayer, instructed him to uh, send a delegation to uh, uh reach Peter in and Jaffa and to bring him back. This is described down through verse 32. And then in verse 33, he says, so I sent for you immediately and you've done well to come. Now, one thing I want you to notice here is that verses 30 through 32 are pretty much repetitive to what we find uh, initially described in verses uh, 3 down through 6. When Peter goes to back to the Gentiles in chapter 11, we come to verse 1 and go down through about verse uh, 16, he's describing in detail what's already been covered in the last part of chapter 10. It's, it's, you, if you read through this, you realize that you, as you read the story as it happens, then you read the, the individuals involved in it, recount all the details of the story again. It's, it's one of the most re repetitive sections that I've ever seen in Scripture. And we ought to ask the question, why does God repeat himself so much in these two chapters? Because this is so foundational to the transition from Israel to the church and understanding the importance of this. This is, uh, you find no other uh, event in all of Scripture that has this degree of redundancy and repetitiveness. And so we ought to really pay attention that, that that must be for a reason that God the Holy Spirit wants us to realize how important this is. So uh, it's not necessary to read through every single detail and every repetition, but just to kind of hit the hit the high points. And then after, uh, after uh, Cornelius has uh, 
reiterated what had happened and how he had sent his delegation down to get Peter, and Peter had returned. Then Peter began to speak in verse uh, 24 to 33. This is in the fourth scene, verses 34, or excuse me, I skipped ahead, 24 to 33. I just skipped right past that, 24 to 33. And now we're in scene 5, 34 to 43, which is, the, his proclamation, his preaching to Cornelius' household. Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Literally, he's saying God has no favorites among men. He, he has no partiality. He's, he's not making a distinction in terms of salvation. There never was in the Old Testament. There were a number of Gentiles who were saved in the Old Testament. There was not something special about Gentile salvation. Ruth, who was a Moabitess, who was the great-grandmother of, of David, uh, was, a, was a Gentile. Uh, later on, as you go through the Old Testament, and we study the life of Elisha, the prophet, there is a Syrian general by the name of Naaman who has leprosy, and he comes to Elisha for healing, and he's healed of his leprosy, he's a believer. And then, of course, the greatest example of God's blessing to the Gentiles in the Old Testament is when God sent Jonah to the Assyrians to warn them that the Assyrians were so reprobate. See, there's hope. If, if they could turn back to God, we could too. Uh, there's hope. There's always hope if there is real spiritual change. But if there's not spiritual change then political change is just window dressing. Now, I know you don't want to hear that right now before the election. Everybody's getting all ramped up. But if there's no heart change among the people, there's no core cultural shift, then it's just a change of window dressing. We're just changing from one cosmic viewpoint to another cosmic viewpoint, which, frankly, is mostly all we've ever done in the history of American uh, popu uh, po politics, especially since the beginning of the 20th century. So uh, what we have here is just a, the continued blessing of God to the Gentiles, but now it, it's on steroids. It really expands to out to the whole world. So Peter says, in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Now, this is a verse that has a problem for some people because they think that this is stating that, that um, on the basis of works righteousness, someone is accepted by God. That ignores the context. The context, remember, is talking about a man with positive volition. Cornelius was described as a just man, one who feared God and had a good reputation, but he wasn't saved yet. Uh, how do we know that? We know that because he hasn't believed. A little later on in this uh, chapter, in verse 43, in this same section, uh, uh, Peter says, uh, To him all the prophets witness that through his name, that is through Jesus' name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins, forgiveness of sins. So it's very clear by the time you get to verse 43 that Peter is saying that there's only one way to have forgiveness of sins. That's believing in Jesus. He, he not works righteousness. But those who, are, who fear God and who are live, trying to live for God before they're saved, what they're doing is they're expressing positive volition, and God will honor that and bring someone to them who will explain uh, the gospel. In Acts chapter 11, uh, as Peter is recounting this episode to the Jews back in uh, uh, back home, he says, Then I remember the word of the Lord, said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, if therefore God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? What's the key verb? They believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's recounting the, the, visit, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon Cornelius and his family and indicating that this comes when they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So belief is still central to salvation. Uh, these, this, this verse uh, 35 isn't talking about uh, justification and 
regeneration. So Peter is just saying in every nation, God has brought the gospel to those who want to know about him, those who are positive. Verse 36, he says, the word of God, which the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, that he is Lord of all. So he's connecting this back to Israel and the prophecies related to uh, the Messiah, but he doesn't go into detail. See, he's, he's not talking to Jews. Now, if you go back and you compare Peter, how Peter addressed the Jews in Acts 2 and in Acts 3, he goes into more detail. He cites numerous Old Testament passages. He talks about how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies uh, specifically. But he's talking to Gentiles who don't have the frame of reference of Torah knowledge that a Jewish audience would have. So he just summarizes the information rather than quoting the verses and dealing with it in detail. So he said, just summarizes it that God... Uh, sent, gave word to the, to the Israelites, uh, preaching or proclaiming peace through Jesus Christ, that word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Now he assumes they know something about the life of Jesus because this word has spread all over for one reason or another during the previous six or seven years, but it has been about four or five years since the crucifixion. So he summarizes the life of Jesus, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, verse 38, and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He doesn't go into the specifics of why, which are covered in the Gospels, that this was part of the prophesied credentials uh, for the Messiah that would give indication to the Jews as to who the Messiah was. So it's, it's not just this generic uh, healing and miracle working that is often uh, thought about today. Uh, it's, it was specific, but Peter doesn't go into it in those kind of specifics. Then in verse 39, he says, And we are witnesses of all the things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. The we there would refer to the apostles because they are the ones who were specifically told in what? In Acts 1.8, to go and be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. So this is connecting, Luke is connecting this event back to that Acts 1-8 mandate. We're witnesses of all the things which he did in the land of the Jews in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. That was an idiomatic way of of describing crucifixion. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Notice that he is, he describes a lot of details here that aren't necessary to, to believe to be saved. He's, you don't have to believe, the simple point I'm making here is that he's describing everything related to Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. He's not giving just a narrow gospel uh, presentation, which very few of us ever do. Uh, He talks about all of the things historically that happened and that confirmed Jesus in terms of his person and his work, and that would include the resurrection. God raised him up on the third day, showed him openly, that is, he appeared to many people. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he appeared uh, to his brothers, to James and to Jude. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to Uh, 500 at one time, and he appeared to many, many others. But he didn't appear to everybody. God was selective in who Jesus would appear, to whom Jesus would appear. God chose those who would be effective witnesses. He's not just appearing to those who are believers. He's appearing to those among the believers who would be witnesses. This is what Peter says in verse 41. Not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God. I read one writer who, tried, who, who made this sound like this was part of the doctrine of election. Now, this is just saying that out of all the people who were believers, Jesus only appeared to a select few, and those God selected were those that would indeed carry their witness forward in terms of the Acts 1-8 uh, mandate to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And so Peter goes on to say in verse 42, and he commanded us to preach. This means to proclaim, to announce to the people, and to testify. That's a martyreo again, that word for to be a witness, that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. John chapter 5, Jesus says that the Father is going to delegate to him all judgment. And so he summarizes in verse 43, To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Now that's the narrow gospel presentation. Whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, will receive remission or forgiveness of sins. And at that instant, he doesn't give an invitation to walk the aisle. He doesn't say, bow your heads, close your eyes. If you want to invite Jesus into your life, raise your hand. At that instant, the people who are listening to him believe in Jesus, just right there quietly in their minds. Or something. This is true. I believe this. They're just saying that silently. And so instantly there's a re- re- reaction. It's described very dynamically in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words mid-sentence, the Holy Spirit interrupts him. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. So the, these Jews there that came with Peter are just absolutely amazed that the same thing that had happened to them at Pentecost is now happening in, in front of them and the Holy Spirit coming upon these Gentiles. Uh, this just completely blew every idea they had about how God worked with the human race. Uh, Verse 45 says, As many as came with Peter were astonished because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Now, this word pouring out is also used in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 uh, to describe the baptism by the Holy Spirit. So that connects these events. This is the baptism by the Spirit, same as what's happened, what happened on the day of Pentecost, same as what happens with any person now at the instant they trust in Christ. The reason you have a delayed reaction here with these Gentiles is because it's a transition period, and in, in Acts, each member of different ethnic groups is going to be brought into the body of Christ through the baptism by the Holy Spirit within the presence of an apostle, showing the apostolic foundation and unity of the church. So they were poured out on the Gentiles, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So they're speaking in, in other languages. They're speaking in Gentile languages. The word tongues is just an antiquated English term for languages. And they're, they're legitimate. They're human languages, and they just haven't gone through the normal uh, language acquisition process. It's a, it's a miracle. Now, as we've studied this before, and there are numerous lessons that I have out there on the tongues issue, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says that the purpose for tongues was to be a sign of judgment upon the Jews. This goes back to um, Isaiah chapter 28, talking about the fact that, that a sign of judgment on Israel would be that, that they would hear Gentile languages in the temple. The, many people get confused and they think, well, the reason for tongues was for evangelism. It never says that. It's not for evangelism here. They're all getting they're all already saved because of the evangelistic message of Peter. It wasn't for evangelism on the day of Pentecost because there it says they simply described the the miraculous works of God. Now you always have people who say, well, that would include the gospel. Well, it's a generic term. Every generic general phrase is going to include the gospel if you want to push it like that, but that's inane. It really is. The issue that the only purpose the Scripture says for tongues is a sign of judgment. Why? Let's think biblically. God restricted his work to Jews from Genesis 12 on. That means God is giving his revelation through the Jewish language, through the Jewish people, because they are the people that he has determined to work with. But what happens when they reject the Messiah? They're going to come under divine discipline. And so God, as a sign that a warning of judgment, is they're going to start hearing 
uh, the the revelation of God, the message of God, in a non-Jewish language. They're going to hear it in a Gentile language. That's a sign that God is not working directly through them anymore. That's the whole point. It's not what they said. It's that it was said in a Gentile language because that is giving indication that there is a shift away from God's focus on Israel and blessing the world through the Jews because he's he's shifting to uh, to the church. So the focus in all these passages is never on what they said. Both here and in Acts 2, it uses the most general phrase possible that they just uh, praised God. They spoke of the wonderful works of God. If, if the Holy Spirit wanted us to read that and get a, and say, well, they were witnessing, he would have said that. He's very good at being precise when he needs to be precise. But when he doesn't want us to to narrow the focus, he he uses more generic terminology because the, the, the this goes to the very purpose of tongues. And so now you have Gentiles speaking in uh, tongues, speaking in Gentile languages. There are Jews present, and so this is, this astonishes them. And so within forty eight hours, word of this is going to be traveling all over. Uh, Israel, all over Judea, and people are going to be saying, "Did you hear what happened up in Caesarea? Those all of a sudden, those those Gentiles started speaking in in other languages. There was a miracle of God that occurred where God is speak, giving revelation uh, via these various languages through Gentiles, not Jews, and those who had a clue as to what was going on." would understand this was the fulfillment of the Isaiah 28 prophecy, that this was an indication of, of, of judgment. So they're speaking with, with uh, in, in various languages, magnifying God, and then Peter said, notice, he doesn't wait. He doesn't say, well, let's make sure everybody really got it clear. He says, can anyone forbid water that, the, that these should not be baptized to have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? See, receiving the Holy Spirit was the result of something else. That was belief in Christ. Because they believed in Christ, they should be baptized immediately. And so they were. They were baptized in the name of the Lord. This language goes right back to Matthew 28, 19, and 20, when Jesus said, Go, therefore, uh, teaching and making disciples, and, and t- baptizing everyone in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he uses that terminology, baptized in the name of the, of, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded them. So here they are baptized in the name of the Lord. This is very important, that identification with Jesus Christ. And then after that, they asked Peter to stay a few days, which he did. And then he left there, and we see that he goes back uh, to Judea in the next chapter, and he has to explain himself when he gets back home. That's covered in the next in, in the next chapter. A lot of that is uh, repetitive, so we'll hit part of that fairly uh, fairly quickly before we transition to uh, Barnabas and Saul. The next chapter is really a transition confirming the acceptance by the rest of the Jewish Christian community of what happens what happened in Caesarea. And Peter's acceptance and outreach and acceptance to the uh, to the Gentiles, and then uh, the that seeing that as a starting point of of the outreach of the gospel into the Gentile community, so that it ends up by the end of the chapter with uh, Saul being uh, being brought back from Tarsus to be a part of the ministry with Barnabas in Antioch. And all of this sets the stage for the uh, first missionary journey of Paul that will come up in chapter 13. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to see your wonderful, magnificent grace that you have not restricted the gospel to any specific group. It's not based on any human factor whether it's intelligence or ethnic background or religious uh, precedence or any other factor, it's just simply based on our own volition, our desire to know you 
and our desire to uh, come to understand you and to know how we can know you better. And that the issue, therefore, is not on who we are, what we've done, our own native abilities, but on what Jesus Christ did on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins. So the issue is simply turning to him and believing that he died on the cross for our sins. And by doing so, we have forgiveness, the remission of sins. And we're so thankful for this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.